Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and my wonderful collaborator this wonderful Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and we're in the midst of a brand new series looking at, well, what we might propose as an alternative, a better option than our current uh, broken constitutional republic. Uh, admittedly, we have a constitution that's not being followed by our federal government. In fact, I think it was the Heritage Foundation did an estimate of uh, looking at what Congress and the courts and the you know executive branch do on a weekly basis uh, in our country. They, they estimated about 90% of everything they do is unconstitutional. So I guess you could say we have a very broken system. We're not following the current constitution and there may be room for, as they say, the Declaration of Independence altering, or there may be room for abolishing because that's what one of our God-given rights is, as uh, very clearly stated in the Declaration of Independence, that if the government that we have currently does not do the job which the creator of the universe assigned for the government to do, which is to defend and protect our God-given rights, the right to life, right to property, right to liberty, right to pursuit of happiness, all of those things. If it does not do that job, instead, it steals our property. You know, it says that you really don't own your house. You just rent it from the government and you pay this thing. Yeah, they call it property tax, but essentially it's rent. If you don't pay it, they come and steal your house and throw you out on the street. So, you know, do we have a right to property any longer? Uh, do we have a right to liberty when you have government thugs saying you've got to be injected with this poison experimental thing that nobody knows what's going to happen when you get ball, but you do, you don't do this, you lose your job and, and on and on it goes. The kind of tyranny that we've experienced over the past three years illustrates we have a government out of control on steroids. And the question is, what's the best way to rein this in? And perhaps, and this is what we're examining in this new series, perhaps there are flaws in our Constitution. It was not as specific as it needed to be. And perhaps there were structural things done that uh, would be better uh, if we propose an alternative and better at protecting our God-given rights than what we currently have. And so we're launching into this new series uh, hoping that you as our listeners will you know, give us some feedback, give us some interaction. By the way, I encourage you to use my personal email. That's dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview, all one word, theamericanview.com. That's dwhitney at theamericanview.com. We'd love to hear from you. Love to field your questions as we put forward this proposal. I know it's a, in one sense, it's a kind of a radical thing to do. But really, what we're doing is in the exact spirit of the founders of our country. They had a government under King George III and, and under Parliament that was violating their God-given rights. In fact, in the, the major portion of the Declaration of Independence, if you were divided up into sections, about three-quarters of the Declaration of Independence is the list of 27 complaints. These are the 27 things the king has done, and these things are actually a violation of the laws of nature and of nature's God. And by the way, I encourage you to go look at that list of 27, because I think you'll find that some of those are very, very present today. 
like he has created all kinds of officers and swarmed us with those officers who are eating out our substance. Hmm. Sounds very familiar to all the alphabet soup agencies that uh, the federal bureaucracy has spawned, most of them unconstitutional, by the way. And indeed, they are eating out our substance as they tax us to death. That was the whole Tea Party movement was taxed enough already. So we're launching out on this uh, uh, experiment because basically that's what our founders were doing when they ratified the Constitution that we are currently under. They were saying this is an experiment in liberty. And they launched this experiment claiming the previous experiment, which was under the Articles of Confederation, which, by the way, they really only were living under for about six, seven years. So it wasn't that long that they actually had an experience with the Articles of Confederation before they said, "Ah, let's ditch that. Let's try something new, something that is an improved uh, version that will better protect our God-given rights. So in that same spirit of our founders, we're going to look at, hey, what might be an improvement on uh, the existing constitution of these United States? So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning? Now, many Americans are familiar with the preamble to the Constitution of 1787. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. These words have been embedded so deeply into our culture that one might even be suspected of treason to question them. Parts of the Constitution might be attacked, but not the preamble. And yet, when the preamble is placed under a microscope, it reveals serious flaws. The preamble does not have the force of law. Congress.gov offers this explanation. In the years following the Constitution's ratification, the preamble has had a relatively minor role as a matter of legal doctrine, but an outsized role, particularly outside of the courtroom, in broadly embodying the American constitutional vision. With regard to the legal effect of the Constitution's preface, In the early years of the Supreme Court, it did reference the preamble's words in some of the most important cases interpreting the Constitution. For example, in 1793, two members of the court cited the preamble in Chisholm versus Georgia to argue that the people in establishing the Constitution necessarily subjected the state of Georgia to the jurisdiction of the federal courts in exchange for accomplishing the six broad goals listed in the Constitution's preamble. Similarly, in Martin v. Hunter's lessee, the court relied on the preamble in concluding that the Constitution permitted the court to exercise appellate jurisdiction over the final judgments of the highest court of the state when adjudicating questions of federal law, noting that the Constitution was established by the people of the United States, who in turn had a right to prohibit the states from exercising any powers that were incompatible with the objects of the general compact. And in McCulloch versus Maryland, Chief Justice John Marshall 
echo these themes in upholding the constitutionality of a national bank. Quoting the words of the preamble when arguing for the supremacy of the law of the people over the laws of the states. Exercising caution in putting too much emphasis on the preamble, Congress.gov states, nonetheless, while the court during the first century of the nation's existence referenced the preamble's language while interpreting the Constitution, it does not appear that the court has ever attached any legal weight to the preamble standing alone. In 1908, the Supreme Court squarely adopted Justice Story's view of the preamble in Jacob, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, holding that while the Constitution's introductory paragraph indicates the general purposes for which the people ordained and established the Constitution, it has never been regarded as the source of any substantive power conferred on the federal government. Instead, such powers embrace only those expressly granted in the body of the Constitution and such as may be implied from those so granted. The Constitution of 1787 was never ratified by we the people. Article 7 of the Constitution specifies how it was originally ratified. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. U.S. history describes how the Constitution was ratified. The ratification process started when the Congress turned the Constitution over to the state legislatures for consideration through specially elected state conventions of the people. The question then comes down to, who appointed the delegates to the state conventions? Archives.gov offers this explanation of the process. The founders set the terms for ratifying the Constitution. They bypassed the state legislatures, reasoning that their members would be reluctant to give a power to a national government. Instead, they called for special ratifying conventions in each state. That indicates intent, but still does not answer how the delegates to the ratifying conventions were appointed. The World Wide Web is remarkably silent on the process. What we do know is that the Constitution was signed by the delegates to the Constitutional Convention on September 17, 1787. It was then transmitted to the seventh session of the Congress of the Confederation, then assembled in New York City. A University of Wisconsin website describes what happened next. On 28 September, Congress reached a compromise. It resolved unanimously that the Constitution and the resolu resolutions and the letter of the convention to be sent to the states with only a suggestion that the states call conventions to consider the Constitution. This compromise followed the recommendation of the convention. On the same day, Secretary Thompson transmitted to the state executives a four-page broadside, which included the Constitution, the resolutions, and the letter of the convention and Congress's resolution of 28 September. News of the adoption of the 28th September Resolution circulated widely. 
By 23rd October, more than 50 newspapers had printed the text of the resolution or reported its passage. But only one brief newspaper item even hinted that a debate had occurred. The distance from New York City to Dover, the capital of the state of Delaware, is 172 miles. Assuming an average of 25 miles per day by horseback, it could take a courier seven days to arrive in Dover. If the courier left New York City in the morning, the day after the Confederation Congress's adoption of the resolution, the courier would arrive in Dover on October 6th. There would have been no Xerox copying machine awaiting him. So, another day would probably have been consumed in setting print and printing. To reach Wilmington and Lewis by courier then would have consumed another two days, with copies reaching those destinations on October 9th. Had local newspapers set print throughout the night, newspaper versions could have been available to the general public in Delaware on October 10th. We also know that the first ratification convention convened on November 26, 1787. Delaware claims. On November 26, 1787, Delaware elected 30 delegates to a state convention to consider ratification. On December 7, 1787, the delegates meeting in Dover at Battelle's Tavern, also known as the Golden Fleece Tavern, unanimously made Delaware the first state to ratify the uh, United States Constitution. We further know the delegates from all three Delaware counties were a part of the ratifying convention. That allowed a total of 46 days preparation for whatever election selection process might be employed on November 26. Ordinary elections require far more preparation time, but this was a very special election. Instead of merely selecting perhaps a half dozen candidates, mostly previously known to the voters, this was an entire replacement to the existing Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. Today, a study of the basic Constitution in a formal course requires a minimum of half a day. The unanimous ratification vote by the delegates to the Patel's Tavern meeting implies that most voters read the Constitution and despising the Articles of Confederation quickly selected delegates who would ratify the Constitution. With only three counties, Delaware did offer an opportunity for relatively rapid action on ratification. It is a well-established fact fact that the new Constitution was being promoted by the financial and commercial classes. So its greatest support might be expected in Newcastle County and Wilmington specifically. But Kent and Sussex counties were more like most counties in Virginia, where there was a substantial amount of resistance to the Constitution among anti-federalists. To suggest that Delaware ratification of the Constitution resulted from an open, fair election is is to stretch credibility to its limits. One should not assume that true elections were held in every state that ratified the Constitution, 
and thus the preamble of the Constitution's claim of being the will of the people seems to be political nonsense. In order to form a more perfect union is a grammatical absurdity. Any schoolchild making it into high school should be aware that perfect is the superlative form of the adjective. It is not possible to be more perfect. Ensure domestic tranquility has, a danger, has dangerous implications. According to Webster's 1828 dictionary, ensure means to contract or covenant for a consideration to secure a person in against loss or to engage to indemnify another for the loss of any specified property at a certain stipulated rate percent called a premium. Taken literally, this would mean that the states no longer had that responsibility and that all police service would be provided by the federal government. Provide for the common defense is redundant in that Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, in which there is no question about force of law, identifies that as a specific power of the federal government. Promote the general welfare is counter to the entire establishment of the federal government. In no other place in the Constitution is there any explanation of how the framers of the Constitution intended this phrase to be implemented. The phrase is one of the most heavily abused in the Constitution, and it has facilitated the growth of our current federal welfare state. Even the phrase established justice has negative implications. It implies that a system of justice did not exist before the Constitution was ratified and starts to make the case that the federal government has absolute jurisdiction over state courts. What principles should be applied to the preamble? The most important principle is that the Declaration of Independence be reestablished as the philosophical foundation for a new constitution. According to that criterion, the wording of the preamble to a new constitution might read, consistent with this nation's Declaration of Independence, we ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all persons are created equal before the law, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among the people, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to establish new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience demonstrates that humans are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. 
But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, manifests a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. These statements make it clear that the federal government may take no action, legislative, executive, or judicial, that conflicts with this preamble. That creates two disciplines, the first in drafting a new constitution and the second in enforcing it. In effect, it assures that the new constitution's preamble is considered within the force of law. By including a rewritten Declaration of Independence within the force of law, two requirements of constitutional law are made clear. The first, that all persons are created equal before the law. The Constitution of 1787, ignoring the Declaration of Independence, had not recognized African-American slaves fully as persons. Nor did that Constitution recognize that women were as entitled to rights enjoyed by men until the 19th Amendment. This preamble also dismisses the idea of a two-tiered system of justice, one tier for political insiders and the second for the rest of the people. The second ain't that there is no such thing as a perpetual union. Curiously, the framers of the Constitution assured that principle because there had been multiple references to a perpetual union in the Articles of Confederation. They must have been aware of the contradiction the Constitution created with the language of the Articles. Their clumsy attempt to reconcile the contradiction was to use the term a more perfect union. That makes as much sense as one equals three. The language of the Declaration of Independence assured the states that they had the right to secede, and the Constitution was silent on the question. Even if we accept that slavery and involuntary servitude are unmitigated evils, there was nothing in the Constitution of 1787 that allowed the northern states to forcibly retain the seceding southern states from the United States. The preamble to a new Constitution addresses that question directly, like indicating that any state joining the United States will not allow slavery because every person is equal before the law. It also allows states to secede, if in their opinion, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. A new constitution would emphasize that participation in the Federation called the United States is voluntary and that the states will judge whenever it is no longer advantageous to remain within the Federation. The role of the preamble is not to spell out implementation details. These are described in the body of the document. <clears throat> For example, implementation of secession might require a notice to the federal government of one year. Had this rule been in effect at the beginning of the war between the states, South Carolina would have informed the Lincoln administration of its intent to secede. During that one-year period, federal forts in South Carolina, including Fort Sumter, would have remained in federal control. 
after which the forts would have reverted to South Carolina's control. A bloody war would have been averted, as well as the precedent that civilian populations may be targeted by military operations. Amen to that. Uh, we always have that right, a God-given right, to secede. And uh, indeed, that's one of the things that the 16th president refused to recognize. And sadly, since that point in time, the people I've talked to say, well, I, nobody's got the right to secede because uh, of the war. So, well, excuse me, the war did not make a decision to alter our constitutional republic. No. Yes, indeed. And I agree with you entirely that the uh, ratification process of this constitution uh, has some suspicious things. Delaware is obviously just one illustration. And it was interesting to see what happened. As you look at the ratification process, early on, there was unanimity among the, you know, obviously Delaware is unanimous. Some of the other states early on uh, unanimously agreed or close to unanimously agreed. But as it went forward, by the time it reached about the sixth or seventh state, uh, they began to find the splits were closer uh, to 40, 60 and that kind of numbers, because I guess uh, the anti-federalists and what the anti-federalists were complaining about began to to make the rounds and people began to say, well, wait a minute, there's some things here that may be of danger to us. And indeed, the big objection that the anti-federalists had to the entire thing was that there was not a bill of rights. There's no guarantee that these rights are going to be protected by this new government. And uh, so a bill of rights was actually part of the deal that was made to create our constitution. And thank you for proposing a, a new preamble. And I like the new preamble, but I think there was just a couple of things that I would tweak in that new preamble. And, and one being that um, we need to be clear that we are a republic. And so in that first sentence, consistent with this nation's declaration of independence, we ordain and establish this constitution for the republic of the United States of America would be my uh, slight addition. Now, of course, we have talked about the need for a glossary. Because indeed, we need to define a republic. Most Americans today, if you ask the average American on the street, you know, what form of government do we have? They will tell you because they've had it incessantly pounded into their head that we're a democracy. That's right. We're a democracy, according to them, but not according to our founders. Consider uh, what James Madison said, who's often called the father of our Constitution. He said, we're a majority are united by a common sentiment. And have an opportunity, the rights of the minor party become insecure. In other words, you don't have your rights protected in a democracy. Because in a democracy, the majority rules. So 50% plus one that vote get to determine essentially what law is. Or you could say the source of law in a democracy is 50% plus one of the people that vote. Well, in a republic, a constitutional republic, no, no, no. The source of law is not what the people want. Actually, in our constitutional republic, the Declaration of Independence declares that it's the laws of the creator. That's right. It's the creator who endowed us with certain unalienable rights. And the laws of nature, nature's God, uh, are the laws of the creator. I'll come back to that in a moment. But let me uh, quote some of our other founders, because we need to know that uh, near universality, they said we were not a democracy, we were not becoming a democracy, and a democracy is something that they abhorred. John Jay, who was first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, said this, too many people, that is, love pure democracy. They seem not to consider that pure democracy, like pure rum, 
easily produces intoxication and with it a thousand mad pranks and foolery. So yeah, democracy is like getting a bunch of people drunk. And again, you have the mob uh, rule uh, and uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton warned that if we incline too much to democracy, we shall soon shoot into a monarchy. Wow, that's an interesting observation that he thought that, that that's what happened. He also said this, real liberty is neither found in despotism or the extremes of democracy, uh, but by what he calls a moderate uh, government. Uh, going back to James Madison and his Federalist paper number 10, which those papers were published in order to exhort the American people or encourage the American people to ratify the Constitution. He said this, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have been, uh, have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. And of course, he, he was writing uh, just, oh, maybe two years before the French Revolution and that bloody democratic revolution that uh, showed that what he was talking about was very real. And uh, we have that example of the French Revolution uh, as that. And George Washington said this, it is one of the evils of democratical governments that the people not always seeing and frequently misled must often feel before they can act right. But then evil of this nature then evil of this nature seldom fail to work their own cure. In other words, the people respond without proper consideration and information, and uh, they do things and are frequently misled because he's pointing out the fact that in a democracy, really the power is not necessarily the 50 percent plus one, but it's whoever gets to influence the fifty percent plus one. So uh, I was at. Uh, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, you know, the mainstream media. And we know that uh, those are a bunch of uh, evildoers. Uh, we have plenty of evidence of that. So you have to be careful because the mobocracy is real wherever, you know, whoever has the, the handle on the what the mob is following. Fisher Ames, who's one of those less known founders, but uh, uh, one of the very important founders said this, a democracy is a volcano which conceals the fiery materials of its own destruction. These will produce an eruption and carry desolation in their way. A pretty vivid picture there of what he thought of a democracy. And Benjamin Rush put it uh, this way, Benjamin Rush, another one of the very important founders that's not well known, but uh, uh, he said this, a simple democracy is the devil's own government. <laughs> oh, wow. Couldn't be, be very much clearer than that. Uh, Elbridge Jerry was another uh, founder that, again, is not well known, but uh, was very uh, important that he said the evils we experience flow from the excesses, excess of democracy. The people do not want virtue, but are the dupes of pretended patriots. That is, they get uh, duped by people who are lying to them, deceiving them and misleading them. And finally, let me mention uh, our second president, John Adams, again, one of the very most important founders in terms of being involved in uh, not only representing our country abroad, but uh, part of the, the conventions. Uh, he said, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There is never a democracy that did not commit suicide. <laughs> so clearly, we don't want a government that is a democracy, according to our founders. And I agree with them. 
because a democracy allows uh, people who are demagogues that can influence vast numbers to sway people in a direction that may be uh, violating the God-given rights of someone else. Consider uh, what happened in Nazi Germany. The majority was persuaded that, hey, you know, those those Jews are bad and we need to just throw them all in the gas chambers and let's all agree to that. And so 50 plus more than 50 percent of the people agreed. OK, that's what happened. So the God given right to life, the God given right to property, the God given right to liberty of the Jews was tossed in the waste can because uh, democracy said that oh, we're the ones who decide what law is. And if we decide, the majority must decide that that's what law is so bad for those who are in uh, the minority position. And so a democracy you know, may work out well for you if you're in the majority, but knowing how mobs, and we've talked about this before, Phil, the, the, you know, the book that, that make uh, Mekel, book that uh, demonstrates uh, that mobs are not to be trusted. They're fickle and they change their minds way too frequently and they're influenced by things that are irrational. Well, what if the mob decides to take your property? Or the mob decides to take your liberty, or worse yet, the mob decides to take your life. Well, if they have the majority and they vote, well, sorry, you lose and you have no security. So that would be my one addition here. And again, like I said, we need a, a glossary that would define republic. That is the laws of nature and nature's God are what govern that republic. And they are the absolute laws of the universe. They cannot be voted on and no majority can change them. Uh, and they are they are the the bedrock upon which the republic is built. Those those things need to be included uh, in in a glossary that would uh, further uh, further define that. The other uh, thing that I think would be important to define and nail down uh, is this: it says we hold these truths to be self evident that all persons are created equal before the law, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Although that list of rights is not adequate, it's it's just the beginning of that list. But I want to focus on the Creator, because if you study the religions around the world, you'll find that there's many different theories about who that Creator is. And uh, if you have uh, the Hindu belief system, well, you have the Creator, and you have uh, 300 million other deities that uh, you get to kind of choose. Oh, maybe you like Kali. Uh, Kali is the god of destruction, you know, and not only creator, but destroyer or, uh, you know, pick, a, pick any other religion and you'll find that the legal system connected with that religion is directly contrary to the legal system established by our founder, founders and established by the Declaration of Independence. So if you were to have a, a system where Sharia law, which is the law that Mohammedans claim is the application of their holy book, the Quran, to civil society, the Quran gives very specific instructions about wives and about children, about uh, you know many many details. It's a political system and a legal system, and so if uh, we're talking about the creator and not specifying, we're not referring to the Mohammedan concept of the creator, nor are we referring to the Hindu concept of the creator. We're referring to the Christian concept of the creator. And I know this uh, gets into pretty controversial territory, but uh, I would argue that if we don't identify who that creator is, we open the door to enormous problems. In, in fact, the problems that we are seeing today are part of a result of that. Uh, they have removed the Bible 
and prayer from the public schools. Why? Oh, oh, there has to be this separation between uh, God and government, which is really what they mean when they use that separation between church and state, because the church has no, uh, you know, uh, ability to control what happens in the classroom. But when they say separation of church and state, they really mean separation of God, Jesus Christ, from the government. Whereas his law has nothing to do with the government. Well, that's the exact opposite of our founders when they said the laws of nature, nature's God, are the foundation of all law, all justice, and are they're the foundation of our constitutional republic. So I would like to, you know, make one modification in that preamble as well, that they are endowed by their creator. The Lord Jesus Christ is what I would add there with certain unalienable rights. So to make it clear, we're not talking about the Mohammedan idea of God, nor the uh, Hindu 300 million gods or Shinto or any other religion in the world. We're talking about the Christian faith. And many people would immediately object and say, well, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. That means you're going to exclude anyone who's not a Christian in, in this new republic. And I said, no, no. We are securing their God-given rights based upon a fixed standard. What our founders called the laws of nature, nature's God, which we know referred, they were referring directly to the Bible by that second phrase, the laws of nature's God. We know that through William Blackstone. Don't have time to go into that uh, today. But uh, the idea that law has a fixed source outside of human beings, that Congress cannot change the laws of the universe. Just like we say, you know, obviously Congress cannot change the laws of gravity. They can spill as much ink on paper as they like, and as many stacks of paper as they want to spill ink on, it will not change the laws of the universe. And so our founders' theory of government, their philosophy of government, is there is a creator God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has established his law for the universe for all the physical laws of the universe, such as gravity and mathematics and chemistry and so on. But he has also established the moral laws of the universe, and those are given to us in the Bible, God's standard of law, God's standard of what is just, what is a crime, what is right, what is wrong, and so on, that those are part of the package, or else you are in the mess that we're in today, where you know they say, we can redefine marriage, we can make it anything we want it to be. So today it's two men can marry or two women, well, how about tomorrow you can marry your horse? Or, you know, marriage could be 15 people or, you know, anything goes and then you really don't have law at all because you have no fixed standard. In our case, it's not even 50% of the people because if you were to poll 50% of the people, they disagreed with the whole idea of what I can only call sodomite unmarriage, that two men can marry, all that thing. No, no, no. That is contrary to the philosophy of our founders. Uh, so I would think that uh, specifying that, and again, we need in the glossary and the footnotes what we mean by that, where our source is that uh, our, our founders phrase, the laws of nature, nature's God, and what the reference is in William Blackstone that clearly shows our founders were looking to the Bible as the standard of what is just. Now, I know that's that may be a pretty controversial step to take, uh, but Phil, what, what are your thoughts? Well, uh let me, let me take those um, in the order that you gave them to me. Um, first of all, uh, we are clear we are a republic. Okay, let me address that. Uh, absolutely agree in the concept. However, uh, and of course, we're not at this point in the discussion, so uh, uh, we really haven't talked about this yet. My plan is to address that in the uh, new constitution where the form of government 
would be identified as a federation of sovereign Republican states where the federation is limited, has limited enumerated powers. That's the way I would I would define a federation. Um, now, the important thing is that it uh, it retains the current idea that the states must be must have a Republican form of government, but it also emphasizes that they are sovereign, which I think is pretty much implied if you really read the, the Federalist essays closely. But nonetheless, um, I, I wanted to, to cover this uh, in the, the form of government as, and that would be Article 2, by the way, in the, uh, the new constitution with Article 1 being a Bill of Rights. Uh, <clears throat> Article 2 would, would cover that thoroughly. And uh, we could expand on that and give all the examples we wanted in that second layer of description of the uh, uh, constitutional document. Okay, well, that that would be fine with me. Just want to be Good. sure that <laughs> we cover it somewhere in this proposed constitution because so many people are confused today and they've been lied to. Effectively, they've been lied to calling us a democracy. And most of the politicians call us a democracy, even those who claim to be conservative constitute, they get it all wrong. And they have no idea of the quotes that I just read of, of our founders who decried a democracy as the worst form, or as the devil's form of government. That uh, I like that that quote from Benjamin Rush. But anyway, that yes, if we're going to cover that uh, in Article 2, that, that would be wonderful. You know, one of the strengths of the uh, new constitution that we are proposing is that it is multi-level. Uh, we currently have a single level, and it really doesn't lend itself to uh, adequate interpretation. It leads to ambiguities, and these ultimately lead to uh, an extended role, uh, expanded role for the federal judiciary, which it should never have. Uh, it should never be in the business of of interpreting the Constitution. Um, the federa the the federal government didn't even exist at the time that the Constitution of 1787 was was created. Yeah, that's madness. So, I mean, uh, definitely when you set up a two-level thing, you can make your your uh, statements relatively brief in the, the upper level as they are in the current Constitution. But then when you get into examples, you have the opportunity to go into all of that detail that you mentioned about democracies and so forth. And uh, I had planned to get into some description of uh, uh, imperial government, which we definitely were trying to avoid. And yet we understood that we were covering a, a geographical area that was continental, uh, potentially, at the very beginning. So uh, you, didn't, you did not have the, the opportunity to have a simple mo monarchy. I think I would, I would uh, perhaps resist that, that concept. You don't go from, from uh, uh, a republic on a small scale like, uh, let us say, the, the Netherlands or, or uh, Switzerland. Uh, you don't have that option here in the United States. You go straight to an imperial uh, government, and and I think that's what has happened. And, yes, and go ahead. Just a, a additional thought in this: I, I like what we're doing in terms of this preamble, 
And I would add to it that we need somewhere the inclusion of the statement that they made about the laws of nature and nature's God being the foundation of the entire legal system. Uh, that, that law does not come from the mind of man, that man thinks, oh, I think it's good that two men marry or whatever, but that there's a standard external to human beings and external to the legislature, the judges or anyone else. Uh, and, and I think that that would be an important point to make, whether it's at the second level or not. You know, I don't know exactly where that would fall at this point, but I think it's important to make that point and that principle because so many people believe that law comes out of the pen of the judge, you know, whatever the judge is right, which we know the judges do not make law. And then, then people say, oh, yeah, I understand judges don't make law, but the legislature makes law. Well, they cannot make a law in violation of the laws of nature and nature's God. And so that principle of our founders, I think, as well, needs to be incorporated at some level uh, in, in, our, in our structure. Well, I think you've actually given a very good example of the, uh, uh, the, the power of that <laughs> second level uh, in the Constitution. Because all of those things that you mentioned, the specifics of no, uh, you know, of a man and a man do not uh, have uh, the right to marry. You know, all of those things can be put into the Constitution itself. And the beauty is, as people, as the people analyze this, I think most will look at this and say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and so, uh, you know, you, you move on. And the most important part of this is that it eliminates the federal judiciary's uh, attempt to extend their, their powers to legislate from the bench, in effect, by creating interpretations of the Constitution. Yes. That is not their business. Right. That should not be the business of any part of the federal system. Exactly. And that's why the... Uh, uh, I have recommended something called the uh, uh, Council of States, mm -hmm. which in effect is the same thing as what existed under the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation. Great. Yeah. And if you want to react then to my second uh, second point or second thought there. Right. Okay. This is a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I had thought of it. And uh, <laughs> not as deeply as you had, though. And, and you know, I, I really appreciate the thoughts that you created. Uh, related. Um, this is not an answer, but one possibility might be to extend it to the Judeo-Christian tradition uh -huh. yeah. as an example uh, of the law. Uh, you know, there are going to be parts of this exercise that are going to be very, very challenging. I think this is one of them. Uh -huh. It's important. And we can't be tempted to to fall into political compromises on things like this. We should be pursuing the truth, period. Nothing yes. else. Nothing else should matter. So, you know, I'd like to kind of table that one sure. and think about it a little bit more. But absolutely, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Until you understand who the creator is, the whole exercise becomes meaningless. And and the point of the creator also brings up the huge issue. In, 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 you now we might call it the elephant in the room today. What is every school child taught from kindergarten on up in the public school? I call them the public indoctrination system. But anyway, those public schools they're taught there is no creator. Now they may be taught this by implication because they're being taught evolution. Uh, but the implication is there is no creator. Ignore the idea of a creator. 
So what they're being taught is actually exactly contradictory to the founding principle that says we're all created, uh, and scripture says very clearly, we're created in the image of God. And by the way, that's why we have rights. Animals don't have rights. Animals are not created in God's image, but we human beings were created in God's image. So we're special creatures of God, and therefore we have rights that uh, other creatures do not. And every human being has rights. We're all equal in, in that regard. So when we think about this issue, if if uh, a rejection of the idea that there's a creator is cultivated in the minds of every person in our country, then they look at this and say, well, wait a minute. You say that uh, we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, but I don't believe we have a creator and therefore we don't have any rights. And indeed, if you accept the evolutionary model of thinking, and, and by the way, uh, Charles Darwin is very clear about this evolutionary model of thinking, that evolutionary model of thinking says some human beings have evolved ahead of other human beings. So there's more advanced human beings. And Darwin, in his second book that almost nobody reads, uh, The Descent of Man, uh, he spells it out that he believes that the most favored races, actually the most favored races is part of the title of his first book. Again, people just hear Origin of Species. No, no, no. Origin of Species, most favored races is in the actual full title of his work. But in, in his second book, The Descent of Man, he identifies who he sees as the most favored races. And he says the Caucasian race is the most advanced. That is, they've evolved ahead of the other races. Then he goes on to say the least evolved races, the ones that are the most backward, he would say were the Australian Aborigines and the blacks. Those are his exact, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but those are his exact statements. And he goes on to say that the Caucasian race, because he believes the laws of evolution are what govern everything, that the Caucasian race will exterminate those less favored races over time. Ooh, horrible. This is horrible. This is racist. In fact, I think this is the source of much of modern racism today and was the source of, of, of racism in the, the social Darwinian uh, uh, world that, that uh, evolved after, after Darwin propounded his, his theory. So the whole idea that if we're not, if we don't have a creator God, if we are evolved instead of created, then we fall directly into this racist trap of Charles Darwin that would say, well, some human beings are more evolved than others, and and some would take this and not put it on the basis of race, that, you know, the color of your skin, the melanin content of your skin determines, but they would say, you know, some people are just smarter than other people, and some people are more skilled, and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think of the dead Ted Kennedy, so he's now um, shoveling souls for, I believe, but uh, he knows the truth too late for him, at, I, I think, at this point. But uh, he said of people like me, and, and like you, Phil, who believe in the Constitution, who believe in the founder's view of law and government, he called us Neanderthals. That's right. We are the primitives. We are the backward human beings. But he's the very advanced human being, and therefore he gets to govern us. He gets to tell us what we must do. He gets to tell us what's right and wrong because he's an advanced, evolved human being, and we are not. Now, we need to recognize that there's a new thing happening right now that, that, that puts this whole evolutionary theory on steroids. And that's called transhumanism. The idea that human beings can be merged with technology and become superhumans. Uh, the Chinese are experimenting with super soldiers that have super endurance and all these, but they're modifying the human being using technology and 
and uh, in some cases they're claiming that they'll be able to implant uh, uh, antennas in the brain of human beings and put them in co- in control and communication with uh, the wireless network. Uh, and therefore, these will be super smart human beings because they won't need to go to their computer to get an answer. They'll get it directly uh, into their brain. And, and so that is and they've clearly stated that their goal, the transhumanist goal is to get rid of all of us human 1.0 and the only humans left would be human 2.0. So they, they've taken Charles Darwin's evolution and they've admitted it. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, one of the theorists of this, has admitted, we're taking control of human evolution. And from this point forward, we're going to be in charge of the human evolution. And we smart people, we advanced, we evolved people are going to get rid of all you, uh, you know, useless. And he called us useless eaters. You, the people who didn't get the upgrade to a human 2.0. You're going to be useless. We're going to get rid of you. And that means that there's an inequality clearly established that not all human beings are equal because of evolution. Some human beings have evolved ahead of other human beings. So this would be something, again, at that second level that I think a clear explanation of why a belief in a creator is essential to this philosophy of government. Well, you've given me an awful lot to react to, and I'll try to react to it quickly. First of all, I'm a supporter of Ted Kennedy. I think that he was an exceptional individual and, you know, part of the elite. After all, he demonstrated that he was a drowning survivor at Chappaquiddick. (laughs) (laughs) A survival of the fittest in the water, huh? Right, right. Okay. Uh, Education. Under the new constitution, there is no Department of Education. Amen. So that takes care of that. Uh, I'd like to emphasize that in addition to animals not having rights, states do not have rights. That's correct. They are granted powers by the people. Okay? Races. Here's an admission. Okay, I'm on the air. I know this is public. I'm an African-American. Okay? I have proof. Um, I I sent my DNA into the uh, National Geographic, and they came back with a complete report. Mm. My ancestors came from the... uh, Olduvai Gorge, which is the the Great Rift area in uh, Southeast Africa. Uh, They migrated through the Middle East, uh, finally going as far east as India. At that point, they turned direction and went um, all the way to uh, Europe, to France, southern France's caves. You've probably seen I've seen the pictures that my ancestors have drawn ah, on the, the uh, cave walls. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, th- those are my people. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, there's a gap in there, so I don't know <laughs> what happened from, from that period forward, but basically, we're all African-Americans. Yeah. You know. uh, okay. Uh, the second thing is that the concept of race has no scientific foundation. <laughs> Absolutely none. I think it's something that really... Um, arose in the 18th century, but really, uh, biologically, there's no way that you could come up with uh, a concept of race because it's a continuum. I mean, we have this mixture of, of everything, you know, yeah. that has occurred over over the, the history of mankind. So, uh, so much for race, and there's no, there's no room for race in a new constitution. Amen. 
Excellent, because those those are kind of the things that uh, today we see being used by those who want to move us towards a totalitarian society, uh, communist, Marxist, whatever you they you are using race and trying to foment a race war and all and, and divide us up based on that. Now we need to be united and united on these principles: the principle that we are created. All of us are created in the image of God. All of us, therefore, are equal before the eyes of the law. Now, again, because the the communists have been fast at work, that equality does not mean equality of outcome. It means, as you point out here in, in this preamble, it's equality before the law. That is, when we come into court, if uh, you know we have to be uh, uh, adjudicating some issue in court, then we are all equal before the law. There should be no two-tiered standard of justice. And we <laughs> sadly see that two-tiered standard of justice all over the place today. Just consider how Donald Trump is being treated versus how Joe Biden and his uh, crime family are being treated. Uh, clearly, the crime family has committed enormous crimes, including treason against the United States. Donald Trump is being claimed, well, you're a criminal because you tried to overturn an election. Wait, wait a minute. If you question elections... That means you're trying to overturn an election rather than say, wait a minute, was there an honest process? Uh, yeah, so we do have a two-tiered standard of justice, and we see that. And I, I am aware of that, of, of just people who go into court and try to represent themselves, pro se. They're usually not treated with the same standard as uh, somebody who's represented by an attorney when they enter court. And that's not right. That, that shouldn't happen either. Uh, and the ability to defend yourself in court, I think, would be one of those elements we want to build into this new constitution. Um, race is actually being used as a substitute for economic class. Um, and this comes from um, actually from Adam Smith. Adam Smith was a part of this. Um, and what happened was that Adam Smith basically claimed that that you had landowners and you had ordinary laborers and you had capitalists. Well, Richard Candelon came before him and said, no, 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 no. That model is all wrong. You also have entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurship dismisses the idea that you can have an economic class. Yeah. So um, it was basically feudalism giving way. And I think we need to get back into that. That's that's the subject of my book, uh, A Tale of Four Cities. And, and that book is available where? Um, it's not quite available very, very soon. Okay. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. <laughs> and we'll let, let our listeners know when, when that does become available. Thank you, Phil. And, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, this this is an interesting experiment we're doing. And, and I think it's probably something that's not being done anywhere in any radio broadcast. So uh, uh, we don't want to brag, but we do want your input. So uh, contact us through the email, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. And as we move forward in this project, uh, we want to propose something that is going to ultimately involve the education of all Americans. So join us again next Friday morning. We the people, the Constitution Matters. Also check out all of the podcasts. We have more than five years of very valuable information on the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. Go to 1180WFYL, 1180WFYL.com. Click on podcasts, and we're the one right at the very bottom of the list. We the people, the Constitution matters, and uh, we invite you uh, to share those resources with your friends and family because we need a grassroots movement across America that would revive what, what has been lost of our liberties in this constitutional republic. 